You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, May 14th, 2007, Episode 19 on Being a Dharma Bum. In our first podcast with Insight Meditation teacher John Travis, he shares the story of his many years of practice and seeking in India, as well as the time after that in which he had to bring what he had learned back to America. We hope you enjoy this personal account of one Dharma Bun's adventures in Asia. This is part one of a two part series. If you enjoy Buddhist Geeks podcasts, please consider supporting us through either a recurring monthly donation or a one time donation in amount of your choice. To do so, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash donate. We thank you for your support. Talking today with John Travis, and he's a teacher in the Insight Meditation tradition. Teaches out in Nevada, and often can find him at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California. And I recently、uh, spent a couple months there. And was able to、uh, sit with John. And he's a fantastic teacher, and I wanted to、uh, get in touch with him and, and talk to him about some of the things that he shared on retreat and also find out a little bit more about him. So thank you, John, for talking to me again. Well, you're very welcome, and、um, I'm happy to do so. So, where would you like to begin with this、uh, what, untangling or possibly tangling? <laughs> Well, I was thinking、um, to begin with,、uh, you, you mentioned a couple of interesting biographic details while we we're on retreat, and it sounds like you've had a really interesting、um, ride. So I was,、yes. <laughs> I was wondering if you could share maybe some of the, the highlights of your,、uh, your path as a practitioner. Right, yeah. Well, I guess I have to start back. Really,、uh, I, I grew up in, in Europe and、uh, mostly Switzerland. And find that,、uh, uh, you know, during the 60s, I was one of those questioners, seekers, that wasn't satisfied with the conventional answers、uh, that I found. And so I began this process of, you know, in a sense,、uh, well, the seeker, and not knowing where I was going. In those days, there weren't, and this was in the 60s, kind of middle 60s, there weren't a lot of books either around about Buddhism or whatever. But I remember in Paris,、uh, I was living in Paris, right in one of those ideal sort of places, right a block from the Sorbonne and Saint Germain de Pre, and it was very a beautiful, what,、uh, artistic kind of community that time, sort of the old. Ending of the sort of the beat era in some ways. And I found this book called,、uh, by Sadhu, somebody rather,、uh, called Concentration. And I read it and I went, oh, now this is cool. So the next thing I know, you know, we were trying candles and I don't know, rocks and <laughs> different things, you know, in the sense of trying to、uh, somehow use the mind. All I understood about the mind was to, to actually penetrate the object. That there was nothing,、uh, that somehow, and, and so there was this sense of, well, I had to get out of myself and beyond myself in some way. And I think I carried that. Then on、uh, in my seeking, I went from there to, sort of, to London and then on to San Francisco to the Haight Ashbury. 
And uh, again, with this thing always sort of looking out that somehow there was going to be an answer out there for me and always trying to penetrate whatever it was, you know, I had to, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, it was really about going beyond my past. And so there was this idea that you had to burn all your bridges, which I did pretty good job actually, and ended up uh, sort of living, uh, you know, on the street in San Francisco. And um, during those times, that was 1966, 1967, sort of the, the heyday of the hate, uh, Ashbury. Uh, but I had this great, fortunately uh, for myself, I had really had this strong sense of seeking. And um, that seeking then uh, really stemmed me into, again, finding uh, different little meditation centers, Suzuki Roshi and, and this Blue Mountain Meditation Center and uh, Mir Baba, <laughs> uh, what was available at the time. And um, uh, then and, and at the time, I didn't really have any uh, knowledge of uh, Buddhism in that way, that it was, uh, again, something that uh, I read actually some early texts that Evan Wentz had written and was so inspired. But I had no context for it, really. And I ran into this group, the Tibetan Floating Lotus Magic Opera Company. And uh, they were, uh, in, this was in Berkeley, and they would do these full moon, what they were really plays of uh, the life of the Buddha. And I had a yoga teacher at the time, this was in the uh, kind of mid-60s, who had been to India. And I don't know what, a bug got into me that I, I had to go to India. So next thing I knew, I was, uh, you know, uh, on a plane to London and then hitchhiked across Europe and, and uh, a part of the TE, the Trans-European Express, to Istanbul and then overland from there. Oh, this is when you could actually and, travel uh, overland. Yes, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, not, it was kind of the route in those days, you know, where you could sort of travel from uh, Europe uh, to India for, you know, $20, $30. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but uh, it, it couldn't have been that much more for the trains and the buses and uh, hitchhiking and, you know, uh, some wild, wild adventures in, in Afghanistan. And then um, just to shorten the story here, I ended up uh, uh, in New Delhi and I, uh, there was a woman, uh, Frida Beatty, who was the really mentor of uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and Tartang Tulku and uh, Tenzin Palmo. And I uh, met her in Delhi just sort of by chance, whatever that means. And uh, she told me about uh, going up to Kathmandu and that there was the 16th Karmapa who was going to uh, show up there. So I ended up going to Kathmandu and meeting his uh, Holy Sixteen Karmapa, which, uh, as story goes, I had um, oh a, a, a little over a year before that uh, had been sick in the Santa Cruz Mountains with hepatitis, and and um, actually I, I know this is funny, but I had actually a vision where, in a sense, I feel like I was healed by the Karmapa, and uh, that. And I knew nothing about Tibetans at that time. It was just, all it was was that uh, I had a vision of this man with his hat on, and, and I didn't actually know what the 
in the sense the soundtrack was, mantra-wise. But uh, I knew that uh, the next morning when I had gotten up after experiencing this, that um, my my skin was no longer yellow. I, I felt healed. I felt like I had started a new life. And everything fell into place uh, in that next year, uh, sort of getting all the pieces together, which brought me to Kathmandu. And I met His Holiness and, and uh, with this person, Oli Nidal, and, and, uh, and now Sultram Alion, her name was Joan Ewing then, and really began then a... Truly, uh, 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 that began to solidify my spiritual practice, and this in the late 60s. Then at that time, um, I studied for the first probably couple of years with Tibetan Buddhism, and then uh, realizing I had language problems. I, you know, in those years, you had to know Tibetan, and I didn't really know uh, that much. I, I wasn't, didn't have that, let's say, put that, had that talent <laughs> language-wise. So uh, I uh, really was seeking something that, that was, for my personality, the best. And I, uh, so I met Manindra, which was at that time in Bodh Gaya, who was uh, the Mahasi lineage, and uh, really inspired me to this simple sitting, uh, sort of going back to Suzuki Roshi also. Uh, and so I did that, and then SN Goenka uh, came to uh, Budgaya that year in the first kind of retreats with him, and uh, I was I was hooked. That was it. And then for actually, then for years and years, I traveled um, around India um, to these different sort of gypsy camps. And um, and people like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg uh, were part of all of that. So were you and, were you mostly just doing a, a lot of practice at that point, a lot of retreat yes, practice? Yes, for years. Yeah. Yes. Where in one year I would I figured I did about over I don't know how many years about sixty ten of the of Goenka's retreats. So you can guess you know how much. <laughs> That was, it'd be, yes, a couple of years where I figured once that I had, yeah, I'd spent two years in, in retreats in India. And it was affordable and I could, uh, you know, I somehow health-wise was able to survive. Not great, but I did. Then when I, when I was around 30, then uh, I came back to States and uh, my good friend Joseph Goldstein, uh, we came back and we uh, drove around the U.S. and this was in, would have been in 74, uh, went to the first summer at Naropa, and there I met Jack Hornfield and uh, began then in this sense of uh, integrating into uh, America. And it was very difficult. I would stay for a while and go back to India or go down to Mexico or just began this, I had this gypsy lifestyle that I, uh, what, um, liked. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And uh, then over the years, I ended up living, I live in Nevada City, which is uh, actually in California. And I came here because Gary Snyder was here and Alan Ginsberg had lived here. And and, uh, Baker Roshi of the San Francisco Zen Center had a place here. So it was a a sort of an old enclave of of, uh, Dharma bumps, you know, and that may be a bad term to use. But anyway, 
it brought me here and, and um, I have sort of based myself out of here all, all these years and, you know, I have learned how to survive in our culture. Uh, that's the way I can put it. And then in the, in the, uh, in late seventies, Joseph and Jack uh, asked if I would start teaching. I said, no, that, that wouldn't happen. And I had a couple of kids and, uh, so was, uh, I had to, in a sense, finish my, some of my family process here, uh, which was um, really was so healing for me, being in this culture. And then, uh, as years went by, uh, I then began, in a sense, just locally here. There wasn't any teachers, so I started having a sitting group, and then I ended up giving talks, and pretty soon, and the encouragement of Joseph... Uh, Goldstein and, and Sharon Salzberg, particularly. And uh, I just started doing it. And then, I guess, then Jack Cornfield, um, I taught at the Zen Center with him and then uh, in this place called Yucca Valley, which is down in Southern California, uh, the 10-day and 21-day uh, retreats down there. And then did a four-year teacher training with Jack. And then I started psychology training because I realized I didn't know enough. And eventually just ended up, um, I think in 91, I just said, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go out on a limb and see if I, I can't do this full time as a, you know, uh, you could say uh, livelihood and mission <laughs> kind of mixed together. And then this last year, I, after teaching almost 20 years, I left and went to India for a year uh, with my wife. Uh, to practice. And we pretty much practiced or studied the whole time we were there. In a lot of ways, I needed that uh, just because uh, the teaching part is a very rewarding process. But at the same time, uh, I think sometimes uh, it's also, uh, there's a lot of politics and compl complexity in, um, uh, in scheduling and time and um, the amount of people that you deal with, which I just wanted to break that and just find out who, you know, if John is nobody, just hanging out without a schedule and having the opportunity to, you know, be, again, go back to this ability to, to trust in um, where you are and who you meet. And I spent many years in India I felt, uh, you know, I can call it Dharma bum, but actually, in many ways, it was the kind of quintessential seeking in the sense that you uh, waited for the information to come to you, uh, which uh, provided me some unique experiences with different uh, mm -hmm. teachers and teachings. So you, did you spend most of your time in India um, doing, like, meditation practice, or you said you studied some, too? Well, both. both. Okay. Uh, we figured both. So uh, I did a about six weeks of sitting in Bodhgaya um, and re also led a 22-day uh, pilgrimage. But I spent, uh, and that was around all the, I, that's one of the things I've done over the years is these Buddhist pilgrimages, which um, go to all those sort of, what the, well, you can say the, the four uh, major uh, places of the Buddhist life in, in Nepal and, and uh the state of Bihar in India. Always interesting. <laughs> you know? uh, but also, I think for me, it inspires me. 
to really look at. Uh, I, I can't. You know, some people can read a sutta or material and get a sense of it. I have to actually almost be in that place. Uh, and and it, it's almost as if the earth gives me information uh, that I don't get otherwise. So in the sense, experiential on some level. And um, I think that's, that's what those pilgrimages, it's what Asia is about for me is that, um, you know, I can, I can, I can read something, it gives me an idea, but, it, but there's a, I have to be someplace to get the whole information. So do you find when you're at those locations that just whatever suttas you'd read before that actually happened there made a lot more sense? Absolutely. Huh. Absolutely. Then, just, well, then I could put it into context for myself. Right. You know, and maybe it's part of it is just, you know, everything is commentary. And so then we create, in a sense, we create our own commentary that is, gives us some view of, of uh, the possibility of our own limitation and also the bigness of what that could have been in some way. Why the Buddha said, you know, the four unthinkables that want to miss the range of a Buddha is uh, getting a, uh, what, some insight into the, the enormity of what we talk about when we say someone becomes fully awakened. It's not something, um, you know, that uh, the imagination cannot fully comprehend that in some ways. But at the same time, we have to, you know, have some idea of respect for that uh, that capacity is, is part of who we are as well. It's not a, a separate thing out there. It's actually part, of, part and parcel of who we are. And that's why we identify with it. That's why we can recognize it in some way. Uh, were there any points in that process that that you that stand out as really being significant or really memorable in terms of, I guess, how the path unfolded for you? Well, I think yes. My my really has to do with my uh, this s- sitting practice, and that I was able to, you know, find uh, in a sense sitting in Bogaya or sitting at different retreats, particularly with SN Goenka. I must say, uh, uh, I um, was able to, in a sense, uh, break out of myself in some way. I think that was probably some of the most important things. And then some of the teachers, uh, I came, some of the Tibetan teachers I came across that, you know, you could walk in the room and it felt like, well, that um, there was so much space. It wasn't about you. It was really... Uh, you were in the presence of uh, something that uh, was bigger than you, and and uh, you could recognize in some way, or I could recognize that that there was something so appealing about that to me that I was willing to go and and um, you know spend more and more time sitting and realizing that uh, maybe this whole idea of awakening wasn't so far away, and that I had nothing else to do there either. <laughs> And in a way, that's sort of been my life. You know, I, the thing is, I haven't stayed uh, in robes at all. I have really stayed in the lay uh, world. But there's so much. I mean, my wife always says I'm sort of half monk, half, you know, lay person. And I see that, and how much I, how much love I have for the Dharma. And there's nothing else I think I would ever really want to do. And yet, I've had to also figure out with kids and everything else how to manage that which has actually, in many ways, uh, taught me so much. The world has taught me so much. And not just about suffering, but in, about in the sense of uh, 
of how attachment, in a sense, there's a way to, I guess the word is hold it lightly, but still be part of it. Because you could take some of the Theravadan teachings and say, well, it's just getting beyond it in some way. You know, the Buddha again and again says that this will bring you suffering in some ways. But he also talked about the middle path. So, in the middle path really being a state of mind. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.